You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to the magnificent show, The 602 Club, and I am just one of your humble hosts, the ever-enigmatic Matt Rushing, and with me this week is the great Danton, I mean, John Mills. I Oh, did I give it away? Oh, crap. Uh, no, actually, I'm one of a potential 5,000 John Millses that could be joining you here on this fine oh, podcast. Oh, excellent. Uh, oh, or I could well, be dead in the tank somewhere. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, you never know which one it's going to be. No, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah. Or whether you're the, the one part. or you were the original. Who knows? Hmm. All good questions. Well, we are very excited tonight. We are going to be diving into The Prestige by none other than ridiculously talented filmmaker Christopher Nolan. Uh, before we do that, thanks for joining us. We so appreciate you listening. And of course, you can get this podcast wherever you're listening. And the best thing to do is subscribe. That way you'll get the episodes as soon as they come out. And of course, you can follow us as well and interact with us over on social media. Twitter, X, whatever they call it, The 602 Club, Instagram, 602 Club TFM. You can also find us online at trek.fm. We've got the entire network on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And then you can also find the listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference on Facebook, where you can join listeners from all over the world and talk about the different shows that are happening here. And last but not least, go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trek.fm. Become part of our team. Make sure that all of the shows here can keep coming to you each and every week. So, John... I I kind of wanted like before we even just jumped into the movie um when this movie came out were you already a Nolan fan and following him or was this the movie that maybe kind of cemented you as a Nolan fan I would say cemented uh I had seen Memento I'm pretty sure I had seen Insomnia on disc by this point. I might not have, but I'm pretty sure I had. Um, I And of course, I had seen Batman Begins more than once. But mm-hmm. while I you know, loved Memento and I thought Batman Begins was a total redemption for Batman as a film character, uh, you know, it's one of those things where Nolan was, the best way to put it is, uh, he was a director I was aware of, but I wasn't a as the pejorative goes, a fanboy yet. And so I saw stuff that he, but there, you know, I saw stuff that he had done that I liked, but there are plenty of directors where they have one or two that you like, and then nothing afterwards. So, you know, not too much expectation. Mm -hmm. And I didn't actually see this on first run. Mm, I saw it second run. And I was the one that talked my wife and my in-laws to go see it at the second run theater that we live near. And, um, spoilers, uh, they did not enjoy it as much as I did. They enjoyed it, but <laughs> I was the one that came out and was like, wow, he's not a fluke. This Christian Nolan guy knows what he's doing. 
that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, because the reason I was thinking of that question was I remember Memento because I was in college and I remember it being a movie that somebody was like, dude, you've got to see this movie. And so I saw it and I was like, wow, this is really good. And, you know, really hadn't seen anything like that um, for the most part. It would just it was just a different type of film. And then I remember I did I did see Insomnia because I knew it was him. And I was like, well, he was the guy who did Memento. And so I, I want to see that. And then, of course, Batman Begins comes out. And I think. I think I'm I'm in the same place in the sense that somewhere between Batman Begins and then this movie coming out and watching it, it was absolutely that thing where I was like, no, this is a director that I'm going to have to always see what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it became that thing where regardless of what this director is doing, I want to see what it is because his movies just are grabbing me in a way that, you know, so many movies aren't even, even when he's doing, you know, characters we already know, um, like Batman. And so that was something that, uh, I was, I was really surprised to kind of think back on. I was like, yeah, this is probably the movie that just was like, nope, Christopher Nolan, maybe your favorite director these days. You know, because George Lucas is retired. Well, I think that one of the most interesting things about it is the very line in the movie, are you paying attention? Nolan sort of announces at the very start that he's going to pull a trick on you, which, of course, is completely fitting with the film. But you get wrapped up enough in it that you forget that he told you at the beginning that a trick was coming and you get, I think it, it's one of those things where this is going to hurt to say, and people hate hearing when somebody says it, but a director like Nolan in today's environment is a rarity. Whereas when we were younger it was more common to have somebody who was absolutely in control of their craft with a singular vision. Sure. Yeah. They might assemble a whole team that gets their vision across the line that they can communicate with, whether it's actors or the DP or the composer or something like that. But it is very obvious that somebody with a very singular idea is sitting in that chair literally doing what a director is supposed to do, which is directing things. It's not a producer saying, I want this thing, go out and get me the material so it can happen. It's a director saying, this is my idea. Right. And I'm going to do this. Yeah. No, I mean, I I couldn't agree with that more because, and I think you're right in saying, maybe this is one of the reasons to which, I ended up gravitating towards Christopher Nolan because I think we grew up, uh, you know, I, you're a little bit older than I am, but we kind of come from basically the same generation of filmmakers where it's it's all of these people who are it's it's their idea. It's 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 um, 
from start to finish, right? Yeah. You know, um, it's or they're very intimately involved in the idea. So, you know, like Spielberg, right. he, he's not necessarily writing the films, but he's so intricately involved in the making of the film, the shooting of the film, of course, and then the post-production that it it is, I mean, every movie he directs, it's a Spielberg movie. Lucas, you know, you think of Coppola, all of these type of people, I think it just really uh, brings to mind, like, Nolan is in that same vein. It's it's something something that just crystallized in my brain while we're sitting here because I, I you know as we go down this road something that crystallized while we've been talking is yes there is a difference. Spielberg is more like Hitchcock because Hitchcock could take somebody else's material and you still knew you were watching a Hitchcock film. His perspective on the world still came across, even if somebody else wrote the script or it was based on a book or what have you. Yeah, it's a good point. Nolan is more like Kubrick, even though Kubrick was known for adapting books like The Shining uh, or Lolita or something like that. No matter what the source material was, you were definitely seeing Kubrick. And when Kubrick was fully in control and the idea was start to finish whether he had a co-writer or not there's just a difference in it's it's almost like spielberg takes a vision and molds it and nolan has a vision and finds the vehicle by which to express it if that if that makes sense mm-hmm. no no i think it's it's absolutely uh makes sense uh, because i think you know that leads me into thinking of something very specific to Nolan films, of course, which is structure and, and nonlinear storytelling. And like you mentioned, this movie is so much about actually being structured the way that a magic illusion is, which is with a pledge, a turn, and prestige. And doing that in the structure of also using shifting points of view with the diaries of the characters where they're, you know, they're talking to one another basically through the storytelling. And all of that is so incredibly Nolan because he just loves messing with your mind and he loves messing with time in his films. And I think that that's something that is just so interesting about that when we're talking about the idea of Nolan himself as a filmmaker, this movie, I think, really as well cements the way in which when it is completely his product, in the sense it's not a franchise like Batman, he is always, always, always going to be playing with the storytelling structure, and he's always going to be playing with time mm-hmm. in his films yeah and it what's interesting is as you go through his film filmography i this is not an original thought i know many other people have made this observation he builds as he goes like he does something in batman begins and he learns how to do it and then he carries that forward into the prestige and then he does something else and he just builds and then the dark knight builds on that and then inception builds on that and the dark knight rises builds on that and all of his stuff is a build i would say that the prestige what's interesting to me 
is I see him having more fun here, being a relative term, than I've seen him having in his previous films up to this point. Memento is a very serious film. Like that is a hyper-serious, hyper-focused film. Insomnia is studio work. And it's a guy saying, okay, you gave me a budget and a project and I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make it work. And I can work with top billed actors. Right? I can work with Hilary Swank and Robin Williams and Al Pacino and get them all to, to give great performances. And even though the movie's not as well received, he gets it across the line. He, he delivers a product that Warner Brothers can say, okay, good. Thank you. That gets him into Batman begins and unquestionably batman begins there's definitely the sense of somebody still working to prove himself coming across this one i finally get the sense of somebody having fun with their work do you i I don't know if that comes across to anybody else i see fun no no A hundred percent agree with you because as you said that I was thinking of it's almost you were talking about how the the way in which things build right throughout his his filmmaking uh, and his filmography you know every every movie kind of builds on on the next and in that um, it almost feels like the prestige is his first completely realized Christopher Nolan film. You know, I, I know Memento has a a lot going for it and everything, but this feels like the movie where the Christopher Nolan that we know and the one that's going to go on and do all of the other films like Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, Tenet, and Oppenheimer comes to life here uh, because each one of those movies – I think specifically really build on the things that he begins to do in this movie when it comes to, again, really playing with time, the structure of the the story and, and the ways in which he utilizes that to underpin all of the thematic elements that he's doing. Like he's not just playing with time to play with time. Right. I mean, I guess maybe one could probably argue that Tenet does that a little bit, but he's he does have a very specific purpose for the the reason in which he does things. And it's 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 holistic, like he treats the movie holistically. Uh, and so, no, I, I agree with you. And, and, and I think. I think he's almost just having fun putting his complete vision of a film from start to finish story wise on the screen. Well, I think that you also see, I think a sense of fun. Fun feels like it's an imprecise word. And I hope everybody gets like sort of what we're saying with that, where it's a, I, and I think it's probably the energy that Jackman brings in. And I would say David Bowie brings in and even Andy circus as well of being playful with their, with what they're doing. Jackman yes, has yes. a playful energy and Bowie just always exuded, God rest his soul. The the Thin White Duke exuded that playfulness. Whether he was acting, whether he was singing, whether he was being interviewed, the guy, his brain went on a level different than most people's. Um, not better, not worse, just different. 
And Andy Serkis, I think, is relishing not being CG and, you know, sure. actually yep. being on screen yeah. uh, during during this and really showing what he can do uh, w- with the role. But I think it's that playfulness that comes across mm-hmm. yeah. while things do turn serious when they're having the competitive stuff. There's an energy that exists in this storytelling that just, I think, sweep, sweeps you up. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm glad that you said that because I think the thing here that um, I was really struck by was the way in which the cast in this film works so well. And it's it's not just that they work, but I was hard-pressed to think of a better Hugh Jackman role where he really gets to dive into such meat and potatoes, right? Like he's just really digging in to so many layers of this character. Um and he, you know, I, I think his role in Logan is fantastic and he does a great yeah. job there. But th- but I I think the thing about this was, and you nailed it, so many people in the cast here are having a just a blast. You know, um I think Michael Caine is maybe the best he's ever been in, in a Nolan film here. Uh, you know, I think Christian Bale's performance um, is just a masterclass, honestly, you know, in playing these two different roles. Uh, even, you know, gosh, the Scarlett Johansson in this movie is just on fire in her role. Although it does once again expose that accents are not her strong suit. This is true. And that's the one that's one of the only things and I know it seems so petty and I'm so sorry for it, but it is one of those things where either commit to the accent and go for it or just don't even try. Don't Kevin Costner it up. Basically. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, Hugh Jackman doesn't have an accent in this movie. Exactly. And so you could have had her basically playing an American in London, and that, I think, would have completely worked. Um, you did not need her to be British. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I'm just 100% with you. I, I, was, I, I think one of the biggest strong suits of this film is that through all of the intricate layers of it, what makes it all work is the way in which this cast is working together and seems like they are having an absolute blast being on screen together to bring this story to life. And I think that's one of the things that makes this movie so ridiculously watchable. Even if you've seen it multiple times and you know what's going to happen, they all suck you right back in like a tractor beam. Well, you know? the, the trick is a truly well-made movie even if it has an O. Henry ending, still sticks with you, still works. And you watch it because it's like watching a magic trick where you know what the trick is. You still like watching it performed well. And I think that is just a, as a callback as an example, is the stronger works of M. Night Shyamalan, even though they have those surprise twist endings, I'll still rewatch the heck out of them. Because they're well made and I enjoy going along for the ride. 
when you don't stick the landing, you're never going back to it again because you just right. don't care. And so I think it's, it is a testament to how, how well crafted this film is that you're willing to go back and watch the trick again because that's, yeah. that's the real trick, you know, if you will, is yeah. to make it worth yeah. watching more than I agree. once. I agree. And, and to me, I think the thing that does that is the way in which the cast suck you back into the story when you're rewatching it. And I also think that that's one of the geniuses of the structure as well, that the structure works to make a rewatch more excitable and exciting um, than just kind of a straightforward linear story. And I think speaking to the cast is also that Jackman is set free here because Last Stand also came out in 2006, X-Men Last Stand. And so this and The Fountain are Jackman trying to show the world that he can escape the shadow of Wolverine. And right. then I think going into that non-linear sort of storytelling style. I don't know. I like, cause it sort of exists in the fountain as well. It's interesting. Cause Jackman's two movies that are after last stand, both lean into this non-linear sort of vibe that goes on. Um, right. And who doesn't love the fountain? But in terms of the nonlinear, what, what I find interesting about it is Nolan restraint is is he keeps using it through all of his films, that storytelling style. But I think it's more refined here. In Batman Begins, it still exists. He uses montage to compress time and everything. I think here there's a little more artfulness to it than there is. Um. I mean, okay, that's a terrible way to put it. That's not true. I think that there is more finesse. There's a little bit more finesse to this, a little bit more um, fine motor control of what's going on with that storytelling style. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that I, in the sense that I think the word that you, when you you said finesse, I was just thinking there, it's like there's just more nuance to it, right? Like, um. I think that's the word that kind of came to mind. Yeah. There and and I think there like when you said there's just a finer level of control that is artfully working to tell the story that he's telling, which you know, to me is another real strength of the way that this film works because in using a real character like Tesla who was engaged in his own electricity war with Edison at this point, completely and utterly reinforces the idea of these two magicians mm -hmm. and illusionists battling against one another. And then meta-wise, this is also another year in Hollywood where two films come out about <sighs> yeah. magicians at the same time, basically. You had... Uh, Norton's um, The Illusionist Illusionist Yeah And then this 
And so it, it's, I, I was just struck by the genius though of Nolan because this is one of the places where I think everything is working to refine all of the thematic elements yeah. in every single part of the film. And so using Tesla is a genius move. I agree. I think it also, the portrayal of Tesla is very key because of the fact that Tesla, as portrayed here, isn't interested in the war. He just wants to perform his feats of magic, as it were. He just wants to go somewhere and just do his thing. It's the act itself is the reward for him. He's not seeking fame. He's not seeking dominance. He's he's just a true sort of mad genius. And the world has always been in love with the idea of Tesla, Nikola Tesla, as a as a man. And I've always been curious, like there's so much I'm sure that's apocryphal, that is legend, that is all of these different things. What I appreciate about Nolan's approach to him as a character here and Bowie's portrayal of him is he just seems... Uh, he he doesn't want to participate in the world. He wants to participate in his experiments, and that's it. And I think that in and of itself, while you're right, you know, he's in this real world war with Edison. There's thievery of ideas that ha that's happening. There's a contest of wills. All of these sorts of things. What's interesting is Tesla doesn't seem concerned about that at all while the conflict is going to consume the two main characters. It's going to consume them, or three main characters, I guess you could say, but it's going to consume them to the point of self-destruction. And it's, it's one of those things where it's absolutely fascinating, I think, to see Tesla portrayed this way because he's not larger than life. He's not anything other than a guy who's just doing a thing like th there's something fundamentally real about the portrayal of Tesla as a person here, whether it's accurate or not, I have no idea, but there's something fundamentally real about somebody who's the reclusive genius at work. Yeah, I was, uh, the thing that really struck me about what they're doing here is the way in which Tesla has, pieces of our main characters and what drives them like like you were talking about his his pure enjoyment of doing a thing um which seems to you know robert is so much more about this idea of you know the joy of the audience when they see the illusion mm -hmm. you know so there's the joy of it um but at the same time he has a lot of Alfred and 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 uh, Fallon, but I, you know, really, I guess it, our main character seems to be Alfred. Where it's like there's that drive and the termination to prove that he can do a thing, mm -hmm. 
and and yet none of them lead him like you were talking about to be a part of this at least as portrayed here as a part of this electric war um because that's not what he cares about which in the end because he's not the showman and um the self-aggrandizer to the the public it's what leads edison to be the one who wins the war right because he's better at the public game yes um the public face game and so uh, that's the thing again i think is just so fascinating because in many ways i think he shows um you know robert how he could be um and 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 both of both he and, and Alfred are just so obsessed. They can't let it go, which, I mean, leads to, honestly, the the biggest theme of the movie, which I, I find fascinating, is the idea of obsession and, and the way, whatever it is that we are obsessed with, whatever it is that drives us, whatever it's, you know, we get obsessed with ourselves, with greed, love, revenge we will become a slave to it if we are not careful and it will destroy us. Yeah. It's, it seems a lesson that's really apt for today's world, maybe for any day's world. The idea of, I, to borrow a line from Tyler Durden, you know, the things you own wind up owning you. And I think that obsession has become an uncomfortable fact of life in a lot of ways in modern society where everybody is encouraged to be obsessed with something. And we all sort of go through it. But when you think about it, the entire, especially social media landscape is about the idea of obsession and So I wonder if The Prestige is a movie that has a message that's worth seeing, hearing, learning for audiences, but might be a bit too Truman Show, I guess. Not that I would compare this movie to The Truman Show at all, but Truman Show was supposed to be a critique of the audience watching it. And I think nobody really, it didn't land, it didn't seem to land that way. And I think likewise, I think that of all of Nolan's films, I think The Prestige has struggled to find a long-term audience outside of, you know, those of us who did love it and, and respond to it. But I don't think that it's found the same sort of purchase because its message about obsession isn't it doesn't hit you over the head with it. You see it destroy these people, but nobody looks at the camera and goes, boy, that obsession sure got to them, didn't it? Like, it's just not plain enough for everyone. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that that is a fault of the audience in any sense. And I'm not faulting anybody and I'm not talking down to anyone about it. I'm saying that if Nolan has ever had an issue, and I think this is still at a stage in his career where it's still a thing, some people would say it's still a thing today, where he's a bit too, um, lack of a better term, caught up in his own intellect 
to take the moment to give the the more nicely sealed package to the audience at the end. It's not as straightforward as an Avengers movie where they take the time to spend the last five minutes to give dialogue to somebody to tell you what you were supposed to think about what just happened. And I know that seems like I'm being terribly dismissive, but I loved all of the Marvel movies up to Avengers Endgame. Listen to Assembling Avengers here on the 602 Club and find out exactly how I felt about everything in, in the first three phases. Don't listen to phase four. And like, do you, I know I'm rambling, but am I making sense? Like, No, no, I, I, I see what you're saying because... I think maybe one of the reasons that, you know, this theme and everything, and, and maybe it doesn't hit people over the head enough, but one of the things I was really struck with in this rewatch was the way in which Alfred Borman's story, this idea of total devotion to art, this illusion that they've created, that they're basically one person, right? where life's a stage and they're just a player on it and they are literally playing a role that their greatest illusion is creating that reality and that their own reality creation it's that's that's their obsession mm. and that's what destroys them because yeah. what's happening is it's not just that they're obsessed with something is that they're literally living a lie and that lie destroys everyone around them until mm. it doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, because what's interesting is he's the one who gets away. And that's what's fascinating to me because, you know, the lie destroys his wife. It almost destroys his his uh, uh, child and, and who she's being raised by. It destroys his brother. And yet, in the end, he's the one who gets away with it. And I think that's where... It's it's one of those beauties in some ways, I think, uh, to kind of give the other side where, you know, no one doesn't tell you what to think because he allows the guy to get away that you're like, really? I mean, it's so gray. Yeah. And maybe what we want is a, sometimes a little bit more black and white, but... I just came away from this movie in in with this whole sense of how we live in a world where reality creation is such a bigger deal now and when you live a lie you well you you talk about you. you talk about all the lives that Alfred destroys and he does destroy people's lives I like I think that an actress who doesn't get enough praise in this movie is Rebecca Hall. Yes. She's fantastic. She's absolutely next level fantastic. She was a revelation to me. I, I don't I, – I'm sure I've seen her in other stuff, but like it, she's not the actress that I can call to mind. Like, you know, ScarJo is a, a name, you know, probably because she's been Black Widow where it's like, boom, pops in your brain sort of thing. But you talk about the lives that Alfred destroys. Well – Robert literally destroys tons of lives all for the sake of fame and flushing out his enemy. That's it. The, he's literally a murderer. 
a straight up murderer. He creates and ends a life nightly, twice on Sundays, specifically for the applause. So who is the greater monster anyway? Yeah. Because at the end, you're almost left to feel sympathetic for the great Danton, because here's a man, he's been broken by being driven to obsession. But my, my Lord, he's literally murdering new life that he's creating through fantastical means every day. Simply for the applause, simply because he cannot handle being number two. So, yeah, you know, we always say, well, Alfred, yeah. oh my gosh, look at how terrible. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know that he murdered people on purpose. He was not a good person, but he wasn't. I mean, yes. seriously, the great Danton's yeah. literally a mass murderer by the end of this film. Mm-hmm. Like he's a serial killer. I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I'm so glad you brought it up because I, I think... Maybe one of the reasons, again, that this movie doesn't quite have the the draw to people is that when you begin to think about some of the things that the movie is saying, the idea of murdering a life so that one can be famous is interesting implications. I'll just leave it there. And so I think it's and again it's this obsession right this obsession that drives us and and really in the end the movie is about the cost of obsession and how it can lead to costing you everything possible um and your life as well um and that is it worth it to be obsessed and that's the thing that i think is most interesting is that Alfred is obsessed with being able to be able to do these tricks and everything, but he's the only one in the end who is able to find a a reason to let it go. And it's because he really did love his wife. Mm Mm-hmm. And really did love his child in the end. And in the end, Robert only loved himself. Yeah. After he lost his first wife. And and I think that's an interesting thing as well. You know, Robert losing his first wife is one of the things I think that truly drives him to ramp this up. Because he sees it as if, you know, Alfred or, you know. Right. Just so, say Alfred, but we well, need both of them. Yeah. It did it on purpose, right? Well, not, I mean... I think what's what's truly great about it is they give um they get they give uh, what, what was her name Julia was that the the wife's name the his his wife um Danton's wife that that was oh uh, yeah that was Julia right uh it was Julia yes so Julia what's very interesting is she agrees to the risky or not that the jerk face twin of the Christian Bale duo wants to try. And this gets back to the, are you paying attention? One of my 
favorite things is the first time you watch it when he has him cornered with the gun. Uh, Danton, great Danton, has, has him cornered with the gun and he says, what type of knot did you tie? And he says, I don't remember. You initially take that as, oh, bluff and bluster. But one of the great joys of rewatching it is you realize he doesn't know. Well, I don't think he says, I don't remember. He's like, I don't know. He literally doesn't. So it's not him lying that he doesn't know. He literally doesn't know because the jerk face brother never told him what he did. And like it, that, sorry, I, I like that. I know that's sort of a. No, no. Yeah, absolutely. Tangent, right. But that moment does break. Danton, if that death doesn't happen, he's perfectly happy just going on and being himself and doing his thing. Right. Because he's also not a ridiculous risk taker at that point either. Right. Yeah. He's willing to play it safe because he is trying to protect the things that he loves. Once what he's lo- what he loves is gone and is taken from him, it gives him a devil may care attitude, right? Like he's got nothing left to lose because he doesn't even really care about his own life. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that well, makes that incredibly interesting. And that even ties down to the end. He doesn't care about his own life. Thousands of times, he doesn't care about his own life. Yes, which, I mean, I think is such an incredibly crazy thing to have in this movie. The question that you end with, and and you're left with thinking, like, who's real? Like, because he talks about this idea of you never knew if you were going to be the one in the tank or you would be the one transported there. And it's like... But they're all you, right? And 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 so you're just left with this metaphysical how, question. How does he of, even know of, whether he's him? It, it, he can't. Yes, exactly. He can't know. Yes, it's it's, a, it's actually the whole. I remember back in logic class, back in um, uh, back in uh, uh, back in college, where the professor was sitting there talking about, okay, Star Trek's transporter. Technically, you're blowing up you, and then you're recreating you. Are you a new you? Or are you the same you? Well, I'm the same me. Are you sure? Because you blew yourself up down there. You created something that's exactly like you. But is it you? And that's the same question that Danton has right at the end. He doesn't know whether he's, you know, is he live or is he Memorex? He doesn't know. He can't know. He thinks he's him. But that's because he created him. So which him is him? Like, that is what's great about it. Is that it is such a masterful moment of the first, especially the first time you watch it sitting there and going, wait, what? Like, what just, like, it comes out of left field. The big reveal isn't, haha, I was evil twins all the time. Oh, you were evil twins all the time. Well, let me one up you. I don't even know if I exist mm-hmm. the same way. I don't know if I'm the person that did the thing to you that did the thing. Exactly. Because I might not be. I might. And am I blameless? Because I'm not the one that did it. That guy's in tank 40 over there. He died 20,000 performances ago. I don't know which one of us did it. It's like it's. Like I, I'm, I'm all animated because this movie is it just slaps you in the face at the end. And you think it's done with the reveals and then it has another reveal. You're like, what just happened? 
what is going on? Well, and I think that's one of those places, too, where when we were talking about Nolan, I, I feel as though this is such a clear example of where Nolan just clearly becomes Nolan because yeah. he loves playing with these massive ideas, right? These these extra crazy metaphysical mind teasers. He loves it. And yep. you can tell that this is definitely a man who thinks very deeply about the world that he lives in and the massive philosophical questions that we have. And he loves using them for thought value, but also just great entertainment value. And you know what? I think that is another thing. With Batman Begins, it's kind of there. He's having fun with it, but he's obviously got somebody sitting on his shoulder. No, you're relaunching a franchise right here. You got to get this right. We're going to have a problem if you don't sort of thing. Whereas The Prestige, this is a filmmaker making something He's telling a story about something that he would disappear down. Like it's his own personal sort of thing where you can see him sitting there with his friend one night, having a little bit of whiskey, thinking, so like if I created a copy of myself, which one of me is me? And this is what comes out of that sort of line of thought. And we've all had those moments where you're just sitting out hanging with a, a person and he's like, hey, you know, what's going on? You know... I wonder, and like, you know, dot, dot, dot. And it's like, and that's the genesis of the idea. I think what you find here is this is something Nolan is curious about himself. There's a curiosity that he yes. has about these questions that comes across. And it's divorced from any of the pressure that comes along with the films before it or any of the obligations we always make the joke where we talk about the quote-unquote blank check movie. I wouldn't say this is a blank check movie, but I would say this is a movie where he delivers Batman Begins and the studio says, okay, kid, we'll back off. We'll let you do your own thing on this one. There's no, there doesn't have a sense, there isn't a sense of, blockbuster expectation with this this is the studio saying you did us a solid batman is a screen property again thank you we needed that we're no longer a laughing stock about how we treat that character this one's on us go ahead and make a make a movie kid right and right make us proud and additionally and this is something i've always entertained in my brain no idea if it would even be remotely true. But I think with Danton, I see Hugh Jackman stepping a little bit into where Nolan's going to be experimenting with the Joker as a character. Of uh, the idea of the mad obsessive with a plan that's not a plan, who's sort of. An agent of chaos. The agent of chaos, I guess, would go more with with Christian Bale's characters. So that's there as the more Joker thing. But I've always right. regarded, in terms of an antagonist sort of relationship, I definitely see a Batman versus Joker thing going on with these characters. And I think you can you can draw a line between the, what 
not necessarily the big existential things he's talking about in this film, but the sort of antagonism about the two people obsessed with control and the fate of everything. Like there, I, I'm stating it very clumsily, but I think you can draw a line between these two, three characters and Batman versus Joker in the dark Knight. I think this is, this is our first step down that road of the flip sides of the same coin, having to face off against each other, constantly trying to outdo each other. Yeah, no, I mean, because, and I see that 100%, because that whole movie, because, I mean, and this is where you talked about the idea of him taking the next thing and and doing it the next movie and kind of one-upping it. Escalation. It's all about escalation. And that's what The Dark Knight is all about. And so I 100% agree with you on that. I, I think um, it... it it's one of those places where you can clearly see a filmmaker continuing to hone his craft. And so I, I love that. Um, I, I did want to ask you about the idea just of the way this mystery plays, because, you know, the movie starts with all of these hints about the entire film, right? It's, it's almost like the way in which, the Mission Impossible movies start with uh, scenes of the movie, massive scenes in the movie, right? That if you knew in context, you'd know exactly what's going to happen. And this movie even then does the thing like, are you watching closely? Are you paying attention? And so I, I wanted to ask you how you feel like then as we've both seen this movie multiple times. Do you feel as though that not only was the mystery done well the first time, but it, it continues to be worth the rewatch then um, as we, you know, kind of round third here. Absolutely. I, I can just concisely say that this is what's weird about this movie is that you forget about it. Sometimes it does not get the shine that other Nolan movies get not by a long shot. When you say no, and people like, oh yeah, the Dark Knight, Interstellar, justifiably so. Those are the, those are his two calling cards. Oh, Inception. Okay, those are his three calling cards. Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. Those are his four calling. Dunkirk. Yeah. Ha ha ha. Right. I'm going on and on. Like he has all of these great things. The Prestige really feels like the one that gets forgot. I mean, Insomnia gets forgotten, but that's okay. That's kind of a push. But of the ones that are his, his. For some reason, the prestige gets forgotten. And I don't think enough people talk about it, but it's totally worth the revisit. I love revisiting this film. Anytime I get a chance to watch it and I have an excuse to watch it, I'm like, yeah. I mean, I definitely think you have to be in a mood for it, but that's true of any any film. But, and I would say that this is top shelf Nolan for movies I love showing to people who haven't seen it before. I love showing it to them because I love getting their reaction at the end and finding out if they react as positively to yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I I think that I am right there with you in this one that not only was, I think, the mystery well done, and again, I believe that the structure of the film and the way that he draws you in by basically showing you the answers 
at the beginning. I think that it's fantastic. Um, and, you know, this being, I don't even know how many times I've seen this movie. It's probably at least a whole handful of times, right? Um, if not, maybe more. I, I still enjoy rewatching the film. I still enjoy being thrust into the mystery and, you know, trying to remember exactly how it all plays out, right? Because I think, again, to me, that's the structure thing working to its benefit, which is you can kind of forget how things play out in this movie completely. Mm -hmm. Like, you know the basic storyline, but you can forget some of the details, and that's because the way it's structured helps you to forget that. And then as you're watching it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's a and that's, I think, the genius of, of the way that the movie is put together, um, which I guess leads me to the place where, you know, um, the, the last question I wanted to ask you, because, you know, Nolan is known in his films for especially as you. And I would say especially the moment you get to uh, The Dark Knight, the way in which the score really becomes, I think, an incredibly important part of the film. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about this score that stands out to you or do you just feel like it's just it's one of those scores where it works in the movie, but I never think about it outside of the movie? I think it works very well in the film. When I listen to it outside of the film, I'm pleased enough with it, but it's not something I'm putting in my regular rotation usually, um, which I know it seems like such a slight, but when you have, you know, oh, which sound, which score are you going to listen to? Here's Interstellar or here's The Prestige. I'm like, eh, it's going to be Interstellar. You know, like it's that sort of thing. Um, or or even, um, you know, The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Rises or Batman Begins, like those are the Nolan scores that I'm going to. There's nothing deficient about this score at all. It's a great score for the film. So that, that's where I end with it. I, I think it's interesting to me because like, I don't even own this score and I never think about it. I think it's one of those things where with the film, it does everything it needs to do with the film to to make it move and all of those things. But this is one of those places where I've just legitimately never thought about this score. And that doesn't make it bad, but it, it does make it different from other Nolan movies where when I think of The Dark Knight, Batman Begins, uh, Inception... All of those movies, I immediately am thinking about the scores on top of everything else that the movie is giving me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's interesting here where I'm like, oh, I just don't ever, I, I would never even think to put this on. One, because I don't own it, because I would, I've never thought of it. Yeah. It never made an impression on me to, the, to think, you know, when I'm watching the film, oh, I would like to listen to that outside of this film. So, um, but it, that's not necessarily a, a criticism. It just means that it's one of those scores where 
it does what it needs to do for the film and that's what scores are meant to do yeah they're not all going to transcend the film they don't all need to be uh the you know Hans Zimmer's man of steel or uh Danny Elfman's batman so long as the music doesn't suck and i always go actually to james horner's score for uh the cheesy arnold schwarzenegger movie commando where no matter how you feel about that movie even people who ironically love the movie or love the movie ironically i guess is the right way to put it even they'll sit there and they'll say i don't know what the heck's going on with this score right now i don't i don't know why this music's here <laughs> like yeah. it's it, it is it's baff like it, anybody listening if you have not seen commando starring arnold schwarzenegger that's okay but if you get a hankering to watch it i i it's pepsi challenge time i promise you that when you hear the music you will say yeah, I'm not. I'm not getting the vibe here. Like you, you almost question whether whether anybody watched the movie before they composed the music, or whether it was just like, yeah, I got this in a closet right. here, yeah. take it, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, you know, I've it's just been a lot of fun to uh, to talk through this. You know, I, I think you and I getting a chance to dive into Nolan is, is always a blast. Oh, yes. Anyway. But uh, <laughs> do you want to talk about Christopher <laughs> Nolan? Why, by gum, I do. You know I do. Uh, I don't know if I need to ask. Five. Um, there you go. Yeah. Okay. There You're you welcome. go. <laughs> the rating five. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you know, it's hilarious to me because I was I, I watched the movie and for some reason I think on my letterbox this was a four, and I was like. What the heck was wrong with you, Matt? <laughs> it's a five. It is. You idiot. It's nah. a five. Um, no, it's, I mean, yeah. as we were kind of mentioning at the beginning, this does feel like the film where Christopher Nolan, it, it, it's like all of the James Bond movies at the beginning, right? You, you have Dr. No, and then you have From Russia With Love. And then you have Goldfinger. And Goldfinger is the one where the entire formula completely comes together. And every other movie that's Bond, it feels like they're trying to just do that. Because um, they you are. Know, yeah. This is, yeah. But this is the movie with where I feel like what we know of Christopher Nolan does completely come together. And um, it's a movie that I think that should get more praise in his catalog of films. I, and goodness, I'm with you. You know, like many movies, this is a movie I don't just pop in anytime. But it should be a movie that's more heavily in my rotation. Because I, every time I watch it, I'm like, good night. This movie is great. Yep. Yep. So, anyway. Well, John, if people did want to see what else is going on with you these days, or maybe just talk to you about Christopher Nolan or anything else, where would they find you? Well, if you want to hear me complain about traffic, uh, you can track me down and buy me a beer and we'll sit down and I'll talk about it all day. But if you want to find me online, you can find me as Castle Junkie. I'm out there. 
And if you want to listen to anything else that I ramble on about, you can go over to the Nerd Party Network and you can hear me on two shows over there. One of them is called House Lights, where we talk about movies and we parse it out by directors and different themes. And I co-host that with Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser. And then there's another one called Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast that I host with one Mr. Matthew Rushing. Which everybody should be checking out, so I hope that they will. Uh, you can find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02. Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero are the places I am most active, so I'd love to catch up with you there. Here on the TFN Network, you can find me on a myriad of different shows. Uh, I've got Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, Saddle Up, and The Artificial Tango, and then on the Nerd Party Network, when I wasn't doing aggressive negotiations, you can find a completed show that I did with Drea Kaufman, and that was called Owl Post, and we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But as always, thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back now, you hear? Thank you.